Hi, I'm Karen Derricades, and you're listening to We Make Media, a podcast about how the culture we produce shapes media and how that goes both ways. So I'm here with famous new media artist Jeremy Bailey in the very space where he recorded many of the 97 episodes of Good Point Podcast. Jeremy is a video and performance artist who uses digital augmentations of his body to explore how creativity and technology intermesh to solve problems and expand possibilities for self-expression. Yeah, pretty poorly though. (laughs) (laughs) He's also the head of experiences at FreshBooks. I've asked to talk to him today about the early days of YouTube, the podcast he produced with net artist Raphael Rosendahl, and the many incubator projects he's undertaken in his pursuit to liberate the cash poor artist from a life of financial precarity. Mm. And we thank you for that. <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll let you know when we've found a, a solution. Yeah. Um, so in 2005, a little mm. thing called YouTube uh, started, yeah. um, really shifting all kinds of things from, you know, where we get information and how to's and mentor each other and, um, and just participatory, the participatory media landscape uh, that grew out of that. How soon after were you posting things? Um, like right away. I was very excited um, because prior to that time, I'd been posting videos on my own website using like the QuickTime plugin, <laughs> which was a thing. Like you had to add either the real player plugin or the QuickTime plugin to your browser. Mm. Um, and so I had been posting QuickTime videos. Uh, on my website and so when youtube came along it just seemed like actually easier to be honest with you it wasn't even like this is a cultural revolution it was like oh there's a like a place where i can host my video where uh if there's like a lot of visits or and stuff like that it won't um it, the server won't shut down because right. I, I had had an incident where a video of mine was a little bit popular and then i couldn't actually afford to host it it's like sounds like a crazy thing mm. uh to say today but uh, i ended up having to host it with my university <laughs> it was like Very anyway it was like mm. you know back then if you just had any video online people were like it's video on the internet right, it's amazing right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh so yeah that's we don't have that problem anymore um <clears throat> thankfully but uh yeah so it was like it solved like a f- bunch of functional problems and then then it became apparent that it was like the type of content people were sharing mm. was a little bit different and really kind of relatable to me in terms of what i was interested in kind of studying at the time which was the history of performance for the camera but it would seem like oh now everyone's doing that and mm. it, it became kind of apparent uh, that we had reached kind of um like a lot of artist subcultures end up becoming mainstream culture and it was like we we're on the verge of a mainstream um, movement or what i would have called at the time like a mainstream like adoption of the aesthetics of narcissism which of course you would call like a video on youtube (laughs) kind of the era of performance yeah Yeah. ushered in this very persona and like yeah yeah, now we have like cloud rap it's like it's gone so far beyond that like Mm. where you know almost all the internet uh, platforms have some version of what you would have called 1970s performance video (laughs) yeah yeah it's kind of cool to have watched that happen yeah so you were before that you were showing them in galleries you were showing them on your own website Mm-hmm. And when did you develop this persona for 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 listeners who don't know? You've, you've got you've got this YouTube performance uh, persona who's kind of a naive yeah. 
YouTuber 1.0, yeah. just enthusiastic to have the world. Yeah, uh, the world's attention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's definitely embracing that like moment of like anyone can be famous. Mm. Um, but that started to emerge, I think, in reflection to um, like a, a bunch of things. One, like prior uh, to YouTube, actually, I was just. I started to satirize new media a little bit because as like a white male, you hang out with other white guys, but then you like, hopefully you talk to a few non-white guys (laughs) uh, and they're like, how come all those like, those dudes are so mean? Mm. (laughs) Like, and how come like, they don't let us like play with the technology and they say we're stupid. Um, And so realizing that was me uh, sort of took on this self-deprecating uh, tone, but also like I felt, yeah, I felt partially responsible. And if you look at art historically, we're actually represented by the same gallery. But I, you know, and I think he knows this because I've talked about it publicly. But David Rokeby, you know, was a Canadian new meteorist that I had studied, and was very much like the black turtleneck and glasses, but like hmm. working on hardcore technology <laughs> and like <laughs> this changes everything uh, about how we create but only I can use it because mm. I have captured the energy and the life force of the computer. Right. <laughs> like, and I found it really interesting because it's like almost this transference of ego, but it was also gatekeeping. And my background's in like kind of sociology uh, from my undergrad. And so, you know, gatekeeping is a way of exerting power uh, mm. and privilege. Uh, that's really like a social injustice, right? It's like, you know, one form of gatekeeping that everyone's familiar with is walking into any corporate board. Maybe that not everyone's familiar with this, but like walk into a, a room, like a conference and it's a room full of marketers or a room full of architects or designers or even artists. Mm. And they'll start using language and acronyms that are not familiar to you. It's a form of gatekeeping because it prevents others from engaging with that group, but it's how we determine who's in and who's out. Right. But very much in like art and technology is like a, a narrative of, uh, who's out um, and who's in. And it, for me, was really interesting because it contradicted the, like my background and understanding of video art, which actually was a, a like a movement of inclusion. Right. Um, because prior to video arts invention, uh, the television and video was an exclusive media available to like, you know, news broadcasters, major networks, that kind of thing. So to be on television was like a huge breakthrough that we actually got to, you know, put our faces on TV when the, First video cameras came out. Cameras came out in the late '60s, so video art um, was really early on about that. About like, hey mom, I'm on TV. Like, there's so many video artists that were just basically doing that, right? Including uh, the mentor that got me started, Colin Campbell, was a Canadian video artist mm-hmm. who explored, explored persona and uh, specifically queer persona in um, a media that had been ex- again. When you talk about inclusive versus exclusive had exclusively omitted, you know, the the identities and narratives of of what you might have considered marginalized folks at that time. So you weren't getting women were in the kitchen in a sitcom. They certainly weren't Martha Rosler, who was like gesturing to cut off your penis. Like that wouldn't make broadcast television. (laughs) So there were just like artists that were um yeah, turning those power structures on their head, which I love. Anyway, didn't seem to think that was yeah, that wasn't happening in in media, new media, or in, I didn't feel it. Hmm. And so I thought I would, I think, you know, we've made a lot of progress probably since then. But back then, anyway, it was like, okay, well, I have, there's there's something I could do here. There's something interesting. Hmm. There's something got disconnected. Um, let's see if we can play with that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's many people, you know, I work with many young people who, um, who don't know what before, you know, who don't know uh 
you know what I mean? For me as a young person, if you told me in Southern Ontario as a 14 year old watching do the right thing that Spike Lee would be talking to people on Instagram. <laughs> and, right, you right. know, I would have, would have blown my mind. Totally. Yeah. But I there re- are many now who just, yeah. I read an mind. interesting article the other day about the death of the paparazzi. Like you don't hear about the paparazzi mm. as out of England, because what ended up happening is the paparazzi, you became your own paparazzi. <laughs> like, right. Why would anyone need to read a tabloid when they could get on Instagram kind of thing and get the deal? And it really was an, also like the celebrity took their media back, you right. know, um, they took control back. So that's so funny because I'm always saying that at uh, children's events, I'm trying to get a picture of my child, but I'm always like pa- paparazzi out of the way because there's always there's just a bunch of parents around, right? <laughs> right, right like right. documenting every moment, and you're like, I I want the picture of the child, right. not the ten people. <laughs> that's <laughs> so funny because yeah, those own. same parents are like, get off your phone, stop using TikTok. It's like, uh, yeah, it's okay if you do it. Not <laughs> Let the yeah. kids own their own media. Yeah, you don't want your kids to be obsessed with their phone or screens. I'm like, oh, like us, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, do you remember what the first post you ever put on there was? On YouTube? Um, it was probably one of my video, like Video Paint 1.0 or one of those videos um, from that era. Maybe World's, no, World's Strongest Man was like the video that crashed, uh, which is a video where I hold a camera out. At arms like that was the last video I posted that like like I had that story about this my own servers crashing mm. so I think it was like yeah uh, right around 2005 this uh, video called um, video paint 1.0 right which I demonstrate painting software I th- yeah so so you tell me about YouTube so you know for the for the for the current YouTubers like what 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 did it look like and feel like then and how did it how did it look different than than now. Um, I mean, a lot of, there were a lot of similarities, but there was like a lot less polish, obviously. And there were tons of people, the idea of user generated content, you don't hear those words very much Mm. anymore, but was like really rough, like, um, kind of the webcams that existed were like pretty poor quality. And so there was a lot of experimentation, people just trying things out or just saying random stuff and that stuff kind of still exists, but it's been drowned out by increasing, Uh, quality and polish to the point where it's hard to distinguish Mm. between what is like you know almost like what you might have seen on tv 10 years ago and what youtube is now and and even like obviously ads there were no ads back then Mm -hmm. um there was a lot more hate in the comments so like that yeah it was just or maybe it was just as bad like you hear about youtube comments being bad there's Mm. they were bad then too (laughs) like Mm. that hasn't changed um i thought it was a step up because i used to get hate mail like, like I would right. get like physical mail or mail uh, via email, which was hateful. And I was like, oh, I can manage these comments at least. Um, right. But yeah. Yeah. But I think the main thing that changed is just that the, and which you'd expect from any media, like different norms got established and mm. norms for quality. And so less and less kind of experimentation, more like genres emerged. Like, so mm. genres like... Um, the, box opening? Yeah, like exactly. Box opening, like tech reviews, uh, like uh, Twitch style streaming kind of stuff. Like mm. that's a huge genre that didn't exist at all back then. But it, it's obvious that these genres, you know, emerged and that they exist. And, you know, these are kind of tropes. But I like the early days because everyone kind of knew each other too. If you're a personality right. on YouTube and especially among artists, like Petra Courtright and I became really good friends at that time just because we were artists who chose YouTube same way maybe a few years later Amelia Allman came along and did stuff on Instagram. We were establishing the norms of that media. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, obviously, like I adopted a lot of what became the testimonial video style mm. in mine. Uh, and that was an emerging style at the time. Mm. Um, and then like, I think, you know, other artists uh, went on to do um, stuff where they would troll or do interesting work within the emerging norms. I think to troll now is pretty tough. Because like, you know, people just click next, like there's so much content and you won't and showing up in the algorithm like that's a thing that didn't mm, exist then right. as well. Um, there wasn't really like an algorithm. There was like search, like there was no feed that you were kind of building for. Mm. Um, yeah. And could you subscribe and stuff and all that at that time? You could subscribe, yeah, but very few people would like say click and subscribe or, or like review right. and subscribe at the end of their videos. Um, like that said, I should also say like some people were playing with it. like Petra, who I mentioned, she would use all of the like hashtag, like hashtag her mm. videos, um, for popular search terms. So she'd use like pornography search terms and stuff, you know, because right. what were people found, looking for? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. And to play with like how people were being found. Mm. Um, so I think like, you know, some of that stuff was emerging, but it was like pretty, pretty, pretty experimental early on. Um, but I think like the style that emerged was like the testimonial style was not about edits. Now there's right. all these, like, I'm sure you recognize there's like these, these special like editing styles that people write about and talk about on YouTube where mm. the, like kind of the ironic, uh, video edit gesture of like, you know, emphasizing mistakes in the video. I, I'm like, you know, have you seen this on YouTube where it'll be like, yeah. someone's like, yeah, like, meh, meh, meh. And they're like, meh, meh, meh. And then they zoom in on it again. It's like, meh, 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 meh. And they'll just, like, take any error and, like, make fun of it. So there's this self-reflectivity, re- reflexivity. And that's... Just outtake. Outtake, into... yeah, yeah, exactly. A version of a meme for video. But as an editing style, that's, like, mm. probably become, like, now standard style for YouTube. But mm. didn't exist then, for sure. Because that's, like, a level of self-reflexivity that... Uh, you'd have to be yeah pretty avant-garde to have imagined then but now it's just like any teenager kind of gets that <laughs> right and now a lot of the unedited live direct stuff you know has gone into to to live yeah, yeah live, to yeah. like yeah, hi here i am yeah and then you don't certainly it cuts back on, yeah. on time yeah <laughs> thinking about the footage um but also, yeah, speaking of that, I mean, you had to hold on to the footage, right? I mean, the videos, you had to have the, like a lot of, you know, a lot of the stuff now is done directly and, you know, it's, it's Instagram is, is, is carrying, is, mm. is, you know, is, is doing the, the, the holding of, of the actual data. Yeah, I mean, you would you know, back, back your stuff your... up kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I back, I would, I always had tons of hard drives for sure back then. Um, that's all, that, that was my number one expense every year. But I think, yeah, now you would just, everything's in the cloud. YouTube, though, did host your file, but just at a shittier resolution. Right. So, yeah, like the, wasn't like a 4K situation right then. (laughs) It's like, you know, people didn't have the bandwidth to stream that anyway. Mm. But it is funny because I'll often get asked, like, some of the videos from that era I still show. um, And the curator will always ask, like, hey, can we get a high-res version of this? I'm like, "Mm, that is the version that, like, that's the native resolution Mm. that I was able to record at that time. We we kind of forget about this dirty middle digital period (laughs) between VHS and, like, 4K, like, high-definition HDR video as we know it now. Right. So you were making videos... And then you were went to YouTube, and now you're taking YouTube videos and showing them in galleries at, at times. <laughs> so, the, yeah. so the YouTube came out, yeah. came off the the the. 
Yeah, yeah. I like. I, it was almost impossible to show just like it on YouTube, which I would, probably would have preferred right. early on. But because early on that was like not possible, um, I think it just became the norm among like a bunch of the artists I've already mentioned too, just to like throw it on a USB stick and show it in the gallery. Mm. Um, and the aesthetics are portable, you know, kind of thing. Mm. But it's true, like probably should be viewed within a browser experience. Um, mm. And like, I think Rhizome got involved in um, in making that possible. I don't know if you follow them online, rhizome.org, but like they created this thing called Net Art Anthology where the, and a, a special preservation method for like, capturing like the all of the like um chrome like of youtube for specifically for like petra courtwright's uh webcam video which is that just got into the moma but like um making sure that it you can watch in its original context Mm. um the same way you might want to watch like you know i don't know a 70 millimeter film uh on 70 miller film in a theater rather than watching it on your phone or something like that so there's been there are people that have worked to figure out the preservation of um that context personally i don't really give a shit because like i'm of the school of thought of um the early video artists which is like the video was so fragile early on that it was like part of its uh what was cool about it was its uh, actual vitality as a living thing that it could that it could decay and die was like Mm. reflective of the media itself um and that it was impermanent and spontaneous and ephemeral the same way like snapchat kind of nailed it with auto deleting videos and stories Mm. and stuff because that you know literally if you recorded something in 1971 your presumption was that it would be non-playable in 1972 kind of thing like um this stuff didn't have a shelf life it was created for immediacy and that was coming out of an era of flexus experience driven art making where they didn't want the artwork to be commodified they wanted the artwork um to be an experience that you had and then it was gone mm. um and no one got paid unfortunately but that was like the whole premise is that this is not art for bourgeoisie this is art for the people it belongs to us it belongs in our heads and in our lives not in like um a gallery or in a I'll storage facility that. yeah yeah uh, and so the, the audiences that you found and formed there, like, are they, I mean, the, sorry, the, rather the communities that you found and, and formed there, are they, do they migrate with you? Did they migrate to other places? Are they still there? Or, you I know, mean, uh, I think that group, if I was to, like, I kind of um, straddled an era, like, but that, what evolved out of the group of artists that were making work in, in kind of communal at that time was this post-internet art movement. So, you know, which is a natural evolution, which is, was like, okay, people made, there was obviously net art in the 1990s and people refer to it that way as this like 90s net art. Mm. And then we were part of like a second or third wave of folks that were using, you know, web 2.0 technologies and socializing online. Social media was new, like Facebook. I was like, I was signed up because I was at university. Mm. Um, and so you're doing like, I do my studio visits on Facebook. Um, But eventually it was like those artist careers started to progress a little bit. Mm. And, but the, you know, as a career progresses, one asks oneself, like, how do I, you know, finance this life that I enjoy? Mm. And so I think, you know, post internet was people not like that. I'm saying this like was a natural response to how do I survive as a, an internet based Mm. artist. And so like a lot of artists started to experiment with, um, you know, because, how do I make like this intangible thing tangible so I can sell it basically? 
Um, and the reason people might not like that is because they'll, you know, they, they might not remember that people were trying to sell videos or figure out how to sell stuff online. And actually, Raphael, who I record the podcast with, had this artist contract that he made public um, because he because he was he was really believed in selling websites and right. which is a cool idea because he's mm-hmm. like you know the idea of the canvas is obsolete the canvas is now the browser um and you can sell it using this contract kind of thing but um the the truth of the matter is like the art sale is embedded in what you just described the obscurity or scarcity of the mm-hmm. object and its lack of reproducibility so mm-hmm. um finding ways to make it less accessible became a way to make the art um more valuable which is like again i feel like you know the reason it's maybe an unpopular position is because it's like a contradiction of the, the original social contract that art was made under which was one of inclusion rather than exclusion right I feel like it's fair though for it for it to be complicated, right? I mean, you know, commercialization of the of the internet is much like gentrification, right? So it's like artists create all this value, they make this yeah. really interesting thing, everybody comes, and then they're like, you know, then they yeah. then they turn it into money, and then yeah. the artists are like, hey, like, w- what about my money? And they're like, oh, you you shouldn't be such a capitalist. And it's like, well, wait a <laughs> yeah, second, yeah, like, exactly. I'm, like, you know, it helped build this. this yeah, value. now and yeah, exactly. Those platforms like YouTube and Instagram, we built those platforms, right? Like, um, and yeah, we didn't definitely, we did not monetize the opportunity. I think it's kind of ironic because probably mm. the artists that were there early were in this gentrification position, but didn't take advantage mm. of it. Right. Like they were new to the, like the warehouse and they're just like, yeah, they didn't, I don't think we saw the economic potential of it. Mm. Um, but I think also coming out of the spirit of the 1990s internet, um, and I love nineties net artists cause they have this politics still alive in them of like pretty grassroots, like punk, uh, politic that, right. uh, the art on the network really belongs to be free and it's a political act. And, right. you know, the early internet was even in a commercial context, full of this idea of equality and opportunity and mm. democ- democratizing information exchange and, you know, you know, kind of the same idea I talked about earlier when video came along of dismantling the industrial media complex. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like I think that's probably we're in an, a, a down part of a wave, and that wave will probably resurge in some way. Not a, maybe not on the internet. I don't know. Maybe in some other media, but doesn't, doesn't, yeah, that spirit doesn't yeah. feel alive on the internet. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, yeah. I'm not really judging it. Like we're in a prosumer kind of era. Everyone mm. is um, both a consumer and a producer. Mm. of content and that's maybe what maybe we did fulfill the, the promise it's just like the economics still seem to sway toward um the few rather than the many but because now it's more about uh the the influencers and uh mm-hmm. the instagram and stuff and, and but you know it's always been about audiences. influencers i like of course my, one of my first jobs in was in like advertising as like a trend spotter when i was like in my early 20s right and we published like a PDF report on inf- and we and we we'd send swag to influencers, you know. But it wasn't what it means today. It was just like celebrities, but minor celebrities, basically. That was what it was. Well, I but remember, like, yeah, telling like learning many years ago, but also repeating it in, in workshops with young people, like in like culture jamming, like advertising. Stuff. Yeah, culture jamming stuff. Yeah, yeah, being like, did you know that like there are people who get paid to like wear these like cool skateboards? It's like now you say that people are like, of course. Like, what do you mean? Like that's <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. like that's you don't even. In fact, you can you can't even tell the tail and the the head because often <laughs> people will make. Yeah. fake advertorials to right. attract but I, but 
what I wanted to ask you is when when did you add the um, self proclaimed? Uh, oh uh, new yeah, media? I never that. I think I was hanging yeah. out with a friend actually at the AGO. This guy Steve Cato, um, who was used to be famous in Toronto because there was graffiti. About him. But anyway, like he's an old friend, and I was joking that I needed to get like swag for myself as an artist mm. and we were like well what would you put on like i was gonna get i was gonna get fountain pens and he's like what would you put on the <laughs> fountain pen and i was like i put famous new media artist mm. and um that got it started that's like the real story and then the like story that i'm like i thought of after that was like this would be really um good as like an seo project for the internet because google and uh like was like emerging as the primary marketing platform and so how do you get recognized became like something that I was just interested in because I was thinking of power and ego Mm. and I thought like people search for the best of or the most famous and it wouldn't it be great if I could be if I could just like repeat this thing over and over again and hack that so that if someone typed in famous new media artist or famous new media artist I would appear as number one in search which is true to this day i do mm. uh, just through like sheer like repetition right <laughs> even just stating it myself was a power hack mm. um so i i mean as <laughs> advice to anyone like come up with a tagline and then eventually like it's self prophesizing through the internet because the algorithm doesn't know never Girl. got the pens made. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. but the idea of kind of you know like the artist yeah. as the startup, right? It runs through a lot of, that, that a was lot the, of your stuff. That was stuff. the thinking. I was like, I just need marketing material. And we were joking about like artists producing marketing material. And mm. then, yeah. And so the, like the natural step was like, okay, well, what's online marketing material? But yeah, I, I, I do really think like that's what I do now. So I've also been working in a startup for over 10, oh, about 10 years. So mm. um, I started incorporating startup language into a lot of uh, my work and making fun of it in my, in my uh, videos, which... Uh, yeah, at first I was nervous about it. Now I realize everyone makes fun of it. Like, but mm. it was a bit, at first you felt a little sneaky. Like, I'm by day, like I'm saying, like, we got to be lean and use an MVP. And then by night, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm laughing about that mm. and putting in my work. Um, but yeah, I think everyone's well aware of startup aesthetics. It's like the language has come out of startup and become mainstream now. So mm-hmm. enough that we can poke fun like the YouTube star or whatever, or the, you know, the, they were the, becoming the brands. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. There was that. And there was a lot of brand of me kind of writing at the time too. Mm. So it was a natural thing. Everyone was kind of talking about it. I certainly can't claim it, but mm-hmm. definitely like, um, yeah, as an artist, uh, I was a like interested in what happened in the 1970s, like I said earlier, which is a lot of artists, uh, develop persona mm. as a, as a way of managing, the self-reflexivity of like now I'm famous so what how will I perform myself as a famous person Mm. um like you look at like William Wegman maybe as an example who like his videos of that early era or Colin Campbell I mentioned early Wegman did like these television spots and these little short snips that you would think belong on YouTube today mm. and he included his dog on top of everything which is like <laughs> yeah, it's so it's like so savant of him it's like yeah, might as well have been a cat <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like uh and he, yeah so it'd be like mm. amateur advertisement with dog mm. you know and that was it. That was like, and there are these short, you know, he did lots, lots of these little shorts, but it, it very much was like him re-performing. Like, you know, when you're a kid, you want to be, you know, the first video you make is like a news broadcast or something like that. So re-performing the media, the history of that media, mm. but with himself in it. And that kind of up, upends the power. So 
I was just really interested that that was happening again mm. on the internet or that like when the means of production ends up in the hands of many, they tend to just re-perform, you know, the power. Uh, and so, but the, you know, that's where we're at, right? Where everyone's kind of performing power. A name, building a name for oneself is much like building a brand for oneself, yeah, right? Or, for sure. or a language through your work and a body of work. And, and, and because marketing and advertising and commercial, the commercial world and capitalism is so pervasive, you almost see these things around you, right? You're an artist and you look yeah. at the newspaper and go, hey, wait a second. What if I, what if I <laughs> sold a painting like this, right? What if I did a banner like the, like the, uh, the very interesting project that oh, you did with the, yeah. um, well, yeah, that was just very much. Uh, so I did this project called the U museum where I track use retar- marketing retargeting, which is like cookies to follow you with banner ads. But like, yeah, that was just cause I was in a meeting at work and people were like, we should be doing this thing called retargeting, which is like a new technology at the time. I was like, what is that? The ads follow the people, customers mm-hmm. around the internet. I was like, hmm, that's creepy. <laughs> well, no, but we control it so it doesn't seem creepy. You know, we do these things. I was like, but what if it was creepy? That would be, <laughs> that would be more interesting. <laughs> of course, we ended up where we are now, where everyone is like super creeped out. Like I just got some earplugs in the mail from Amazon because I asked it about snoring, you know? <laughs> right. And it's like, here's a free sample of earplugs for your partner because you asked about snoring. Wow. <laughs> I know. And then they'll take, and then one, maybe it'll take, it'll all go away. And then we'll be like, no, yeah. back to easy recommendations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, now yeah. I got to search and be like, which search word do I put first to get That's the true. thing? That's like, true. Like, put me back in the amniotic fluid. Reattach. Start it all over again. <laughs> From the YouTube and the world audience to to um, the podcast and this mm-hmm. kind of uh, bubble, um, uh, like this intimate uh, mm. conversation between two established artists. What, what, what brought you guys to, to doing that together? Yeah, uh, well, like many things, just uh, a conversation. So Raphael Rosendahl, who's like a, a great, uh, great internet artist, has done all kinds of um, early work, like I said earlier, on like the website as an artwork uh him and i just became friends early on and uh he loves talking he's like he's like a tim ferris and he's like super efficient he spends about he's very profitable as an artist he spends three hours a day like working as an artist and then he has all this time left over mm. and he's just like very punctual he's like a dutch person so it's just like not to stereotype dutch people but he's like really organized gets this shit done and he's like everything's very simple like and very iconic and it's like well, of course, people want this. I will give them this. Right. Um, <laughs> and then I'll charge this much. And then they give me the money. And then I spend the money. <laughs> but uh, so we had always gotten along. And he also had a different, very different point of view all the time. Like he was, um, you know, he always just had a, a unique point of view. So we became friends and we would chat. And uh, he liked to Skype and just have conversations. And then with the conversations we have, or in, or if I'd visit him in New York or wherever, we're always like, yeah, just interesting and fun. And we're like, how come, like, you know, how do we make this accessible to more people? Mm-hmm. Should we record these? And ultimately, him and I chatted, like, that when we did studio visits or we talked to younger artists, they just don't have access to that type of conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And just a lot of people don't. And, like, mm-hmm. and don't, and the questions they ask are really like things that you take for granted as you've uh, kind of struggled through an art career. And so we we're just like, well, we want to talk. If there's value in, like, just being open and honest, 
Um, we'll find out if we don't, you know, we still got to talk cause we want to talk anyway. So mm. it was like two friends just getting to hang out. Um, and yeah, we built up a small following, uh, which was really beautiful in a way and reminded, then we started to remind us both of the early internet mm. because people would email us like, remember email, but like they would, like, <laughs> but they'd email us nice things and like long form notes and say, you know, talk about their lives. And then we started interacting with them on the podcast and they'd send us like, bits and pieces of their lives and we would reflect that back to them so it was like this like building a community which Mm -hmm. maybe sounds super obvious but like we that was something we also craved uh and turned out other people did as well so Mm. uh we actually stopped it about two years ago or a year and a half ago and then recently started to resume it but one of the reasons we stopped it is because Raphael uh, and myself, to a lesser extent, started to get nervous that we are giving bad advice. You know, it's like, and that who are we to give advice? Uh, like, I challenge Raphael on that because yeah, I'm like, you know, just two people. I mean, yeah, that's not from a, from a, and I'm sure you've, you've you've heard from from many fans, but I mean, yeah, for me, it was very much a. Um, a continuation of those conversations you know when you're in when you're in art school you have these great yeah conversations well, they stop, um yeah. and as soon as you leave there's like the work yeah you definitely don't not... get authentic art conversations they're very rare mm. so because art like i was joking with another artist the other day like artists are just extremely critical people mm. and through their bizarre and twisted like criticism they get to like fun conversations like mm. the conversation is just more fun you know yeah like, well our criticism is love right i mean i mean i think it's engagement right like it's mm-hmm. like when you really engage with something you're you know you're thinking about it critically i mean again maybe that's an artist uh i think it is thing. i think it's something you, yeah. they teach in art school right it's like mm. you can't look at anything and if you didn't so for example in art school if you don't say anything it's the biggest insult mm. to everyone in the room right. and especially to the creator mm-hmm. right and so but then like you get it so into, you're, you're getting nothing from it yeah yeah but i run into this like every day because I like I run a design team right and like if I state like a matter of vision or fact sometimes it can offend people because like how dare you like reframe (laughs) the conversation right you know uh that's like it's hard to challenge that well of course it is like you really have to deeply kind of want to like Mm -hmm. you have you have to be like oh here we go like Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is like let's get in the fire let's figure Mm -hmm. this out kind of thing yeah there is some kind of intellectual sparring happening or it's pretty snobby probably if mm. you think you know but um it's fun like i think like almost every artist i've ever met like enjoys sparring you know mm-hmm. that way yeah. i've come to love though that a lot of artists have this like personality type where they at least like as artists become established this a thicker skin you know where they're mm. willing to eat proke and prod each other and each other's work and it's not a big love in every time mm-hmm. and, um challenge ideas and ideals. Yeah, and the value of that critique. I have like, very few, if any, artists, uh, friends who are not artists, though, actually, because I just can't mm, hang out with non-artists anymore. Mm. <laughs> it's just horrible. <laughs> but just because I can't, I can't have a candid conversation with about people getting like, mm. um, not either Ouch. not getting it or feeling offended by right. you know, what I'm talking about. So. But you're around so much uh, tech and business, like, just, like well, I like folks, CEOs so... a lot. Like, right. I like, uh, yeah, and I like horrible executives and things like that. I like people. <laughs> <laughs> like I like yeah I actually like those people because they're more similar to artists in that they have mm-hmm. like um, even though uh, they're misusing their power a lot of times they also mm-hmm. have um, no filter for their thinking mm-hmm. and so you know they'll put it out there and they're expecting to be challenged back made great friends with a lot of folks like that specifically in the realm of tech there's this uh, role in every 
a company called a product manager and they're like they actually have no skills and they'll tell you this themselves they're like i I don't you know they pay me but i have no skills (laughs) however like i am really good at like critical thinking and like Mm. taking multiple points of view and synthesizing an opinion and i'm like "Mm, you sound like an artist yeah Yeah. uh, i've ended up like working with and i founded um or co-founded a program to teach uh product management actually because Mm. i really just enjoy hanging out with those types of people because they actually operate under the same kind of mantra of debate gets us kind of to the best idea right uh, just, i do love a good yeah a d- good discussion good debate mm. and so the pod to bring it back to the podcast like raf and i like the idea was we wouldn't plan this thing out because mm. if we scripted it out or we felt like we could produce it we wouldn't arrive at an authentic um, point of view and the reason we called it good point was we would start every episode with maybe an idea of what we would talk about, but maybe not. And the whole point is we'd arrive at a good point because mm. in artist conversation, somehow you leave the conversation like better than you started. That's mm. almost like, I don't know, in a lot of artist conversations, sure there are blows sometimes, but I think most of the time artists like challenge each other and then they somehow get to some like greater understanding on both sides. And mm-hmm. Absolutely. Great studio visits operate that way, as you've mentioned several times, you mm. know. Yeah, you leave like a, on, but the whole new, yeah. Yeah, it's like a, and, it, and it's a, it's actually a kind of a form of gratitude and gift giving mm. uh, in those studio visit moments. I'm sure you've had a few really delightful ones where there's a give and take, and then at the end, every, both parties have kind of come away with a gift uh, from the other. Mm. So we were really exploring that and we and having a different point of view. Like, I couldn't be more different than him in a lot of ways, right? Is what allows us to get to a better uh like a better point in my opinion so hmm. um even though like there are people who take favorites in our fan mail for sure right <laughs> uh that was fun i mean we like we liked that so mm. yeah. yeah well he has a very yeah he has a very european uh, sensibility <laughs> and you have a very toronto sensibility right i mean there's there's a that's the first time anyone said that i like that idea though, that there'd be a really? toronto sensibility like queer people talk about queerness a lot more in Toronto I would say yeah and the Toronto art community if we're going to talk about it at all founded on people you know that were really passionate about um yeah like the queer community here and mm. building that out as both a visual and cultural mm. mythology and narrative whatever you want to call it like all kinds of cool stuff um mm. also like there was part of it that didn't fit for me if I if I speak candidly for a moment which mm. is that I was doing stuff with technology and that definitely is not part of the Toronto aesthetic. And so one of the things that pushed me online as an artist early on was like I was seeking out my community because I couldn't find it locally. Mm -hmm. In fact, like the local term for me was nerd. Mm -hmm. Right. Like and so I really and I really felt like no one showed my work. And still to this day, Mm -hmm. no one wants to show like in Toronto. I almost never show my work. And I shouldn't like it's probably my own fault but at the same time like early on I was just like what is going what why why can't I be a part of this and it would be like no no it's gonna be about grimy queer aesthetics it's gonna be punk leather Jeremy leather yeah and I was like well what about my laptop could I bring that to the <laughs> I think like the aesthetics obviously like that were mainstream mm. then are well and they weren't like that was just the dom- predominant aesthetic I mean since then there's a lot of cool stuff that's happened on the internet mm. but trying to be cool like cool and internet did not go together when I was right? starting out oh, so, interesting. Right. you know like I'm working on a some something this weekend like for a british fashion magazine with influencers like that'll you know it's like a s- sculpting with like jeremy's software with key influencers and i'm like 
that would not have existed. Mm. And if you look at the images, they're super cool looking people. I'm like, how do I have a right to be a part, like working with these cool people? Mm. Like, as it would have been for me, just like, I didn't think of myself as cool. I was trying to get into the cool kids club, but then no one was having what I was serving for sure. (laughs) Was there any geolocation online that was like, so, you know, yeah, most of, Folks were um, in Berlin, actually, Mm. uh, or New York, Mm. um, but spread out across the United States. And then Berlin became a hub. And uh, there's a strange number of Dutch people from Amsterdam and surrounding regions. And that's still true. They were really active and really part of that community, including Raphael, actually. And uh, I don't have an answer on why that is, but it's similar to Canada. I think they like supported it and funded Um, the funding structure in Mm. the Netherlands was to support non-traditional media similar to Canada that's why I didn't understand why it wasn't cool in Canada Mm -hmm. but in Canada like was predominantly if you look at the media art history is a lot of big productions Hmm. but not a lot of small uh cool experiments video art was huge in Toronto though absolutely Um, it's just like as soon as computers got involved I can remember like I was represented by v-tape and I was like asking them can you just like take files instead of videotapes because I don't use videotapes anymore and this is like 2007 or something and they're like no we have to transfer it to beta (laughs) it's like it's like well this doesn't really make sense for me and also like I distribute my work online is that like what what when are you going to get a website going so that I can send people Mm -hmm. there and they're like well you know the database FileMaker Pro does it really (laughs) interface with our website and it just like felt like they were moving way too slow Mm -hmm. so uh no no fault to them I think like when Kim and Lisa and folks who founded that they they did a tremendous amount for the community but then I just like wasn't finding my community locally so Mm. um the video art community kind of didn't become the internet art community and I feel bad about it to this day though because um it just like I mean my last straw yeah yeah personally Mm. like my last straw was I had a I pitched a show to a gallery and I had a really good curator lined up to write about and represent the show. It was to an artist run center. And then like the idea was I was going to engage the local community mm. and the administration of the gallery. Uh, and I was going to like uncover problems using like product design methods, which is what I use to make all my, my work. And mm. then I would like create like a satirical product that kind of like unpacked the relationship they had within their community because I, you know, and they, yeah. Uh, how, long, how long ago was this? This was like probably five or six years ago. Okay. And but the response I got was like, no way. Like we're, the programming committee, many of my friends were on this committee. Were like, we're not show. We're not going to do this show. We don't care. You're just going to make us look bad, right? So the, and they really felt like. And I was like, I'm not going to make you look bad. And what are you afraid of? If I talk to your community, and I feel, I still feel that mm. there's this tension that's not really talked about in the art world in Toronto of. Um, the art art world being separate from its community, um, right. and traditionally speaking, like you said earlier, like mostly a white uh, artist community in like conflict with what is the most diverse city in North America. Mm. So I probably would have highlighted that, but mm. what would like would that have been such a bad thing for a gallery to take a risk on um, on that issue um, and potentially? Mm. But maybe they were not ready to change and. Uh, I don't know. I'm well, thank like, God for the inter- the internet platforms then, because the the problem with that is that 
yeah, I mean, and those things do happen online, right? I mean, sometimes to a toxic, you know, whatever sure, you sure. have to you get no, into right. cancel like culture the, stuff. Yeah. But, you know, being called out, there's a certain accountability and visibility, you know, that comes, accountability that comes with the visibility of that you can't hide and that you can uh, go to the street and that people can, yeah. you know, you know, well, so they, that's, like, yeah, yeah, so I very think, like, guarded. And anyway, upset, like, yeah. yeah, the bottom line for me is like the internet it's has always been my exhibition space for that reason because mm-hmm. it's like, didn't have to get through some like, committee or panel um, to try something out like you just Mm. want to as an artist you just want to experiment and not have gatekeepers saying you can or cannot do this or we're worried you're going to embarrass us well I'm sorry I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want I'm an Mm. artist right I'm going to work with the community like I'm going to be responsible yeah (laughs) you know like I'm going to talk to an audience like Mm. that's another thing that I like (laughs) I'm I'm going to listen to what they say I'm going to incorporate their feedback right but yeah, so anyway, anyway, I don't want to disparage the Toronto art community, but I just didn't <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, feel yeah. like I fit in right? Um, and that they were, yeah, really w- welcoming. So I know that they have welcomed other people and I'm sure that they're, they're good. There's lots of good people and they're, they're friends, but it hasn't worked out for me uh, personally. Anyway, I think like um, at the end of the day, I would blame myself. Like you have to invest in your community, but mm. I, I chose a different community ultimately, right? So mm. it's not a surprise that once you make a choice that, okay, my community is going to be online or my community is going to be this other one that I'm not seeing here. That was an explicit choice. So mm. no uh, shade on the Toronto community, but it's not like uh, my community. I can say that kind of, Without much, um, without much doubt. Mm. <laughs> a couple of really cool things that you guys did, like offering the free uh, advertising space to people. No to one would take in. it. <laughs> that's hilarious. But it, between that and the, you know, asking people to, to send in field recordings and stuff, it just really seemed like a, like a zine, like an like a sound zine. You oh, know, that's like a cool a, way of thinking about it. I never thought about it that way, but that's like the spirit, yeah, of like mm. sharing and like not caring <laughs> too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and a yeah community of contributors kind of thing. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Some... yeah. So we're gonna do movies, movie reviews mm. for a little while. I don't know. We might mm. review other things, but he mm. just wants to get away from having opinions about. I don't know. Well, I'll like, miss those opinions. I'll miss those conversations. Well, he still has tons of opinions. That's the thing. Like, I'm not worried. I just kind of direct Raphael like a force or something, like right. a, sculpting him like an electromagnetic force. But, um, <laughs> anyway, I enjoy, I enjoy our conversation, so we're going to continue to do it. Cool. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, there's 97 episodes of it. And again, it's, again, it makes me think of like a zine that in the sense that it's just like, just, I'm going to just put this there. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then there's so much like? to go yeah. through it. Well, no, but they're, they're not, you know, they're not overly thought out. They're not overly oh, produced. Yeah. And they're... You know, they're passed around and... I'm going to... Yeah, I think that... I didn't make that connection, but I think it's a great one. Hmm. Um, yeah, you guys also did your show notes, too, or like a like a Trevor, treasure trove of... Uh, there's <laughs> my contribution. I listen on 2X and I just, like, hang out on Google and it's fun for me just to see if, like, I can cobble together, yeah, like a citation list. Mm. Because, like, you don't realize how much you cite in conversation until you have to write out all of the references that are embedded in your Mm. conversation. So for me, like it became an interesting, I don't know if it's interesting to others, but it became an interesting challenge just to see like how like embedded our conversations were, Mm. Um, especially because we were talking about art. So, you know, you could really turn people off if it becomes super 
embedded, right? Because it's like, I don't get that reference. What are mm-hmm. you talking about? Duchamp reverberating aesthetics? What is that? Yeah. Like, so then to I try and it. like cite it's everything. Like, I love that about it. But yeah, it's kind of niche. It's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, hey, yeah. Like, yeah, but then I loved if like a student was like, oh, what was that interesting thing that Raphael said? Like, mm. I, could, I should go look up what Solowit uh, was saying. And then, mm. I don't know if anyone's done this, but mm-hmm. um, folks have emailed me to thank me for the show notes, which has been nice. <laughs> Um, nice. And it also works for SEO, just like another SEO hack, uh, ah. which is like if someone was searching for Duchamp, they might also find uh, our podcast. Yeah, right. interesting. So. Yeah, I, I recently included it in a in a in a um, bibliography for a research grant. What? Of like, because I was like, oh, I got to revisit like all this McLuhan stuff and you know ways of saying. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, like there's, but it's true. There's like all of this oh. stuff that I'm like, oh, I got to get back to to that. She just said Ways of Seeing, which is John Berger's fundamental book on visual, like visual culture and how like how we see the world. Like every Mm -hmm. anyway, for our listeners, you should read that's like every Art 101, like first book to read kind of thing. Like our expectation was never like it was always just to produce it. And if like a lot of it and you would just catch it wherever it was like Mm. um, there's this I used to have this mantra, which uh, as an Internet artist, because of the feed, like the mantra I had, which is like satirical to a certain extent, but was like, I'll make more work of less value faster. Mm. And it was like based on this idea that in a stream, like it's what's new Mm. and in the moment that's more relevant than um, the quality and the upfront work. And it's like that flexes the idea of being inside the experience. So the internet is really a lived experience. It's a living thing. It's always changing. And so whatever you made yesterday is like out of context to, you know, today. And mm. it's erased by the, the stream. The stream's just constantly going, mm. but it's really liberating also just to like make without, you know, regret or without having to package or archive or whatever. Right. You know, you know, you see people post like, I'm, I'm going to post something next week. I'm coming out with a newsletter. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. you know, stay tuned. <laughs> Like, oh, oh yeah, I'll be really, riveted. The great thing about it is that if you don't put anything up, no one's missing you. You know what I mean? Like yeah. no one's like it's not like somebody going to your site and being like, yeah, "Oh, they yeah. haven't updated anything." Oh my god, I right? love that. It's like what if you're you not there, said, you're not yeah. there. Yeah. Like this idea that people visit websites too, I find absolutely hilarious. <laughs> like, check out my website, <laughs> but no one knows what you're doing on the internet. No one gives a fuck. You know, mm. like like they're they're lucky. You're lucky if they get on your LinkedIn profile or something like that. So just to talk about some of that. Did, digital economies uh lab and stuff and and uh, and you know i know that you well you did a did you actually patent these ideas or you just showed you just drew drew patent drawings okay so I've, yeah i've like i played with artist and economy for throughout my whole career like ec- the economics of being an artist and of capital and startup culture and things like that as a as a factor of technology that's how it started like Mm. just as an artist working with technology and then working in a startup and making fun of how of like artists using technology you have to ask yourself well what is the root origin of that technology it it takes you to obviously the companies that Mm. invented those technologies and in video art that was like sony was released a very important camera called the sony portapack in 1967 68 i always get the date kind of slightly off and um, but it was the first consumer uh, video camera, and then it was also the fastest selling electronic home home electronics device or consumer electronics device in mm. history to that point. But there are like subsequently, like from that point to now, there's like a calendar of different consumer electronics devices that ended up in the hands of artists, and that ended up being like the most successful launches. The last 
ones you might remember were like the Kinect camera for the Xbox, mm -hmm. which a lot of new media artists still use. And I made work about that. And so, or the Nintendo Wii before that, like these these basically these things that were created for one purpose, and then artists hacked them to do other things. Mm -hmm. And they became this huge, but they were also wrapped up in these huge consumer sensations, uh, which made it even more attractive to artists because artists, again, like I said earlier, want to reverse or like own that means production, really unpack what it means culturally. Mm -hmm. So for me anyway, it was just like, what is the culture that's embedded in these devices? And like, you know, how does art, how do artists uh, figure into that? And, mm -hmm. and how do I figure into that? And so, um, and then ultimately, if you're going to be a famous new media artist that works with new technologies, why wouldn't you invent technologies? Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you are kind of inventing technologies. So what's different from you as an artist and a comp what's the difference between a company and an artist? Mm -hmm. They're both like got these like innovation labs or you, that language of innovation was really emerging out of like startup culture and Silicon Valley and like language that was being used in that realm I started seeing it seep into the art realm and mm. different artists start to play with that but also outside the art realm just like in the general culture like in dinner parties and stuff and people referring to this language that I thought was exclusive to technology but was becoming just like mm. how we like navigated the world you know like in how, like Elon Musk was like was people's hero instead of like I don't know mm. Barbara Streisand or something like that or I used to joke like you know, our parents had the Rolling Stones and like we have Amazon or put another way, it's like they had free love and we have free shipping. And so <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. like at a certain point you just say like, okay, that is the just dominant culture. Mm -hmm. And so as an artist, you're like, well, I have a responsibility to like exist within the current mm. context and cultural context. And so let's like figure out what's going on here. And so patents <clears throat> were just interesting to me because they were one of the ways that um, people were talking about power in power dynamics in tech. Um, and there had been like various activities that had led to that. Um, patent trolls and patent like trolls. That, right? Yeah. And like Apple patenting, uh, like a what lot is, of what is a patent troll. A patent troll is someone who patents an abstract concept in software ahead of the curve before the technology even exists sometimes. And then later goes out for, uh, and sues people and ask them to license that patent, right? Mm. Um, so like a lot of the early MP3 and online, like the, the idea of an MP3 on the internet, which, you know, so Spotify probably pays a lot of patent trolls because mm. people in the 90s were like, or late 90s actually, because there's a very specific time where this became legal, um, mm. would be like, okay, I'm going to like patent an idea for a jukebox on the internet mm. <laughs> that uses, you know, digital files and so abstract that like, you know, it'd be, there's so many technologies that are going to have to use that mm. idea. And they didn't have to build anything uh, because they changed the law in such a manner that you could patent software. So prior to 1994, you couldn't. Mm. And it was because Bill Clinton appointed this software lobbyist, Bruce Lehman, to the patent office uh, in the United States. And then they changed the law to make software patentable. Prior to that, it was only copyright. And so but once it's patentable, you can patent um, the concepts that underlie, not just the actual writing, like mm -hmm. a book, right? And so... The concepts that underlie software qu quite often are very abstract, right? And, yeah, and then it became like a war to like hold on to the most number of patents and mm. use that against uh, other trolls or other companies. But anyway, so I was just really interested in that. And then I thought, well, as an artist, like, shouldn't I patent my stuff? And I, mm -hmm. that thought didn't occur to me until I started looking at where patents were going. And they were going towards this um, place where people were patenting gestures, um, like 
uh, because computer software was no longer, um, you no longer existed just on a computer. It also existed on a phone and the phone was a touch interface. So touch interfaces meant your body was now included in the patent. I was like, wait a second, body patent. Mm -hmm. Like, so are you going to patent the way I express myself with my body? Mm. Well, if, if I have to license the way I express myself with the body within any given platform, that may be an interesting dystopia. And, um, like augmented reality, which is a technology I'd been working with before the label existed, mm. um, was like, you know, like veritably attaching the software to your body. Mm -hmm. And therefore, like, it didn't take long for me to look up patents for companies that were investing in augmented reality and realizing that, you know, not, uh, not only would like finger gestures be included, but all kinds of body gestures. And so... Mm. Some of them are quite amusing, actually. Like, like whether to well, look like, right or something to get something. To well, like the around. peace sign. Apple owns the peace sign, or like Google owns what? like making a heart with two of your hands, or Microsoft owns like say what, putting your uh, hand behind your ear, or I don't understand by putting your hand on your face near your mouth. Um, I did not realize. Yeah, that. or taking a picture actually, just by which is an artist uh, device, like framing, yeah. framing a scene by forming two L's with your index and thumb. Um, that is like a Google gesture for taking a photo. So uh, it was just really interesting to see that wow, that's where we I were going. Is that my and God. so like if you're using a Google phone, you could take a photo that way. But if you're using an Apple phone, that would you never happen, right? right? And then you have to imagine there's these like there's this future where culture is technology mm. and the technology is culture, and we're in. I'm an iPhone person, or I'm an Apple person, or I'm a Google person. Uh, allow like determines how you might express yourself. Mm -hmm with your body and so that was just like that's a really fascinating line of thinking mm -hmm. so i thought i would start to that's patent cool a lot idea. of my kind of bad my body uh kind of gestures in relationship to some of the artwork i was making and to patent or provisionally patent other ideas so when i say provisionally patents like basically state that i'm <laughs> in the process of filing the patent without going through the full legal uh, procedure right because it's quite yeah because it's expensive basically mm. but that is like it gives me the begin the uh gives me the, like the credibility of having begun the process and therefore like theoretically it's defensible but ah okay well you'd be great and then you would give them you would let us just use our own yeah, yeah. <laughs> do whatever you want you put them in the creative commons and just let us yeah, do I'm things not, again i'm not the one who's bodies. gonna sue you yeah right. do whatever you want yeah. that's great <laughs> you have to I trust me that. of course i love that i love that, <laughs> I love that. I love that. I well you're asking about the digital economies lab so mm -hmm, like yeah that's the patent stuff just I did become very interested in um, art and tech and the differences between the two. Mm. That question is like, what's the difference between an artist and a, the CEO of a tech company? Mm -hmm. And it seemed like the difference was like a whole lot of money. Yeah. Uh, and mm. I had to ask myself, so like, true. why is that? Like, um, and ultimately, like, uncovered that uh, through research that the average artist, I mean, this research is obviously readily available. The average artist, though, internationally makes less than $10,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, artists are, are below the poverty line internationally and among mm -hmm. considered among the most precarious uh, group of specially skilled, quote-unquote, workers. Mm -hmm. um, so they have more education, basically, mm -hmm. than any other uh, segment of the population mm -hmm. uh, in their uh, income bracket. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which is just like, Jeez. you know, and it's kind of like you know it, it's obvious. Mm -hmm. But then you're like, okay, well, why is that? And uh, so I started just being interested in that and then thinking like, well, what if I kind of uh, started or experimented with ways that artists could, you know, either subvert or make money by taking some of the, what I know from the tech world and transferring it. So like the idea of patents, or, but also I started like this 
kind of satirical accelerator for artists where we design products and, and make them available to the public. And so started just experimenting with that, uh, mm. using the methods from my corporate life alongside artists in the art world. Mm. And just like maybe I thought might, that might generate like new ideas or new th- like things that I didn't expect because mm. I, I just like to like with the podcast just like to experiment. Well, they, yeah, the, like spoiler alert is like I haven't made any money this way, but mm. I think it's generated new ideas. Um, <laughs> and I like those ideas just because there wouldn't they're, they wouldn't be generated by the traditional media or the traditional mode of of working how long um, before they're just co-opted by them <laughs> that's a good like, question like should, art, should, should business be learning from artists or artists i will be tell you from like business? yeah one, in, we... one insight i've learned about artists is they love starting things they hate sustaining them. so yeah it might just be a matter of like sustaining right mm. like or that's me like i will say like i only work with social practice artists mm. on, on, in the in that particular uh like uh, project because mm. um they actually they're they're more in tune with the idea of an audience so like I tried working with just any artist mm. and the ones who you know like were revolted by it the most were the ones who like this doesn't allow me to fully express myself like my self-expression is at risk if I have right. to consider an audience mm. I'll be like okay well I'm not gonna work with you because like, that, mm. that won't that's an interesting part of commerce though that is an equalizer that is a, yeah. that is an inclusiveness right that people yeah. are like wait yeah yeah but you have to cons- you have to consider your audience yeah, so like, your think, audience is your client it's a great customer, irony too yeah your, yeah yeah. yeah, like that's been the irony of working on that project is the people that are best at producing these like what would be maybe traditionally be called like, you know, capitalist products or something mm. are actually the ones that are the most socially engaged. So, mm. um, but I also, I like that concept that they, we might be able to like expand the access to their ideas mm. uh, socially as well. And so they usually get that too. And they're like, that's pretty cool. Um, anyway. Yeah. So I've done that work. And then recently I started a lab. Uh, well, I didn't start it. I was just asked to like help out with a lab in Ottawa um, called the Digital Economies Lab that Art uh, Engine, which is an artist-run center there, established. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we invited a bunch of artists. And the government of Canada is currently like looking for help. I, I, I did help also consult on a large grant, like a $90 million fund to the digital strategies fund Mm. to um help like get uh artist run culture and artists like Mm. working and leveraging these means of production that we just we've been discussing all day which Mm -hmm. is like don't be afraid of the podcast don't be afraid of google like government's obviously worried that like if artists don't keep up they'll fall behind uh their audiences and Mm. um they like mm. they did share a really interesting insight with me when we were working on the fund, which was that what they called the gloss, glossy brochure effect, which is like in Canada anyway, arts funding negative negatively correlates with audience attendance, and uh, it was related. This glossy brochure effect is that the government has found when they invest more in the arts sector, like they pump up the grant amounts that people spend more on the production of the ephemera of the exhibition. So catalogs, postcards, posters, that kind of thing. So your graphic designers and your printing houses get paid, but the artists don't get paid anymore. And there's not more audiences that attend. So, which was like a really like, you know, horrific in like, you know, Mm. aside for them you know, to have admitted but mm. and their anxiety was with a conser- with a potential conservative governments around every election or around every corner if we can't prove that art in Canada has value and we measure value by currently by attendance you could argue that they need a new metric but I don't right. see anyone out there that has like any good ideas mm. right and they should probably be doing that that's probably another project someone could pitch mm. but we, mad- we measure art by like the number of people that 
like socially consume it. Mm. Um, therefore, like if no one's going to this stuff, like eventually if it's just mm. artists all, and you've been there probably like you're at your opening, it's all other artists at your opening. It's a little bit like a, like an elitist club. Um, so like, yeah. how do we deal with that? You know? Yeah, I mean, I ha- you know, it, it, an artist runs center, you get paid an artist fee because they get, they are, for people who don't know this, they are getting funding from uh, from some kind of granting. So, you, so you're getting an artist fee, seven people come to the open, <laughs> opening, you know, it's True. Of, three of which are students at OCAD who need to review like, it. And that's not just in Canada, <laughs> like I've flown all the way to Austria to like perform for the three other people that mm. were performing that evening, you know, and no guests. Like, I, and the, that's, was, you know, government funded. Like it happens, right. right? Well, and the, and then the flip side of that, I mean, I did a, I did a perform in a kind of interactive uh, exhibit at Gladstone Hotel for Nuit Blanche one time and, and 10,000 people came through. Wow. So that's amazing. And it's the only thing that anybody has ever mentioned to me like, oh, I was, oh, that was you? Like, you know, <laughs> like in a, in a future setting. Yeah. But, you know, you know, it's like great. So yet you get the exposure, right? You get imagine to, if the artist like, run centers like really legitimately engage their communities, mm-hmm. right? Like how awesome that would be. Like, and if it was more than seven people that showed up, and they got, or maybe they started working together, mm. like without politicizing against one another, which we know, like in Toronto anyway, mm. has been an issue, right? Where people have fought over resources. Like, I think the government, like, yeah, the council or whatever is what I should say, really legitimately wants the art sector to work together, but they, mm-hmm. you know, like from what I saw behind the scenes, it was interesting as an artist because I'm not like a career artist run center person. Mm. But they're like, why can't these people just like work together to get themselves out of You know what we'll do? We'll put together like almost a hundred million dollars. And it's like no one applied. <laughs> you know, the first round. Right. And anyway, people are now. And um, yeah. I, I'm encouraged by the early results from, from this lab. I think we're probably going to like uh, come out with stuff like artist guilds and unions and mm. like different kinds of resources for artists from centers. But there, there's a whole bunch of ideas that are coming out of it. Um, I'm yeah, encouraged like that, you know, the, it's snowball. It just has to, you start small and you build it up mm. over time. I like, I love exposing the behind the scenes of the art world because mm. you know, you're in every, for example, every young artist out there who's like dreaming of their institutional show or the museum show needs to know you won't get paid for that show. Mm. Um, and B like the show will be funded by probably an arms dealer. So like, Jesus. like in many cases, the mm. boards of trustees, you know, of the mm. museums that you're like, you know, you're, you wish you could get into are, made up of people from all kinds of dubious backgrounds that conflict entirely with your personal Mm. identity politics. So Mm. you have to be prepared for that conflict at the outset. And so to pretend we're preserving something super special Mm. is also like perverted in my opinion, because it's like, it's like, it's pretty ugly below, like just like scratch a little bit below the surface. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not as like, um, yeah, I don't know. It's Mm. not as pure as like, or as simple as like, those are the capitalists and those are the, pure artists you know without any yeah so it's okay to burn it down then yeah because yeah well i think it's it's okay to build (laughs) something better burning anyway yeah like i think it's okay to build like a better way and to think about just because it was that way and your teacher said it was that way for 30 years Mm. it's going to be that way for another 30 years like that you could say like actually no i'm gonna try something different like Mm -hmm. that's what artists have always done they've experimented in the digital uh economies lab you guys really put your, you in the committee or whoever it was that put forth those questions in the application. There's some really, really uh, wonderful questions, I think, that okay. kind of surface um, 
you know, what's at stake and all of these things that we're talking about and the mm-hmm. choices that, that we're making and the, the things that we're making and I mean, systems that we're making now to, to address some of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you your, your own questions, basically. So if all your worst anxieties and deepest fears about oh, yeah. the digital transformation of society were to come true, what would the future life of an artist look like? Yeah, I mean, like, I guess uh, it's probably like, yeah, a fun dystopia to describe, but it would be something where we don't have any control. Like we're all ascribed to platforms, but we don't have any control over those platforms. Um, we can't really create anything outside of what we're told to create, right? We're just performing without any control. Um, so there's no there's no expression. There's just reconfiguration um, mm-hmm. or something. So I'm actually like not pro Instagram in particular, mm-hmm. like, because, for example, like there's face filters and stuff like that. But like uh, they're just like telling you, try this one on, try this one on. Mm-hmm. Kind of tells you what to do. doesn't really give you the space to express yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm much more like the guy that wants to get in there and tinker and like turn break it. So it would be harder and harder to break things. Things would be more and more secure. I'm almost mm. like anti-security, anti-privacy mm. um, because these things represent forms of control. Don't worry, it's good for you. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to worry. I'd like to actually have all of the control. I'd like you not to tell me what's good for me. Mm. Um, and there's learning in that thoughtfulness too. Well, well, because it's like form of gatekeeping. Creating those yeah. things. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, like I didn't, sorry, I didn't like, um, yeah, uh, claim, I'm not claiming citizenship in Facebook land. or mm. So anyway, that would be my dystopia. Mm. Um, so the end of the free kind of uh creative space that drew mm. me to the internet in the first place to around christmas time they were they had a, a contest of uh you know you can do you can so they have developer software now for ar for yeah. for the you know so snapchat has it and facebook for instagram right so to so you can make these 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 filters and they gave they gave out three prizes internationally one of twenty five thousand, one of ten thousand. And two of ten thousand, you know, it's like so you've got you're like artists, we're inviting you again, it's duplicating the same kind of you know, bullshit, right? It's like yeah. we're inviting you to bring all of this time for, and for really and, cheap, yeah, because yeah. one uh designer on staff would cost them on a grand. So I mean right. I, I had call a call with Snapchat when I was making all this face filter stuff years ago mm. and they wanted me to come work for their team because they said that they were inspired by my work. And then when I said, like, that's great, I'm an artist, like, I can only work four days a week. And they're like, no, that's not how this works. We'll get all your IP and, you know, you'll work for us for time, but we basically own everything you've made. You know, so it's like, well, you just said you're inspired by my work and Mm. this wouldn't exist if I wasn't allowed Mm -hmm. to express myself. Right. So I think that the the two don't commingle very well. I just don't trust uh, companies to act on behalf of artists. Mm. and that's why it's important that artists understand the tools, right? Like, and I, again, like, I, I ingest, I'm saying I, I don't agree with privacy and security, but what I really don't believe is in being, like, you know, pigeonholed or tracked. Like, I will never put my, like, gender identity down, and you're never going to, Facebook's never going to play, like, this is your face and we're tracking you across the, I just don't agree with uh, this idea that two or three companies should control everything. Mm. So, anyway, it's like a, a libertarian position, probably, or something, but... Um, hmm. Not very controversial, but that would be my worst fear. <laughs> right. But also in that world, like, no, your artist run center is like completely meaningless too. Like, mm. they're just like 
they're forcing their programming through the Instagram, right? Like Absolutely. straw, mm, <laughs> you know. That's true. And it's like we've all got, but we only get photography shows now or something mm. like that. They're square photos. It just doesn't make any sense. So. But is that why artists? I mean, in the context of the digital digital economies lab, or just all the stuff that you were talking about, you know, does that mean that? Uh, yeah, they see is it, it possible a... for the artist to shape the business model so that the business doesn't eventually go? Oof, the four days thing doesn't work for us. We don't want you to have the time to do the thinking about yeah. the thinking before the making. Like, you have to be a machine. Like, is, are those things possible to, to I think to so. The yeah. like, internet was created by people and, like, artists are people. So, like, mm. we can generate new things. That's my position. Mm-hmm. So, if in, in, in your wildest, most beautiful dreams about the digital transformation of society were to come true, what would the future life of an artist look like? I mean, first of all, the artist would be the one, like, pushing us forward not like running or trailing behind and mm. they'd be pushing for new ideas and and maybe they're not making a ton of money doing that but they're making some money because they're the ones establishing the new norms uh, for how they make money and how mm. their creativity is monetized but they're taking back control um, they're learning from the capitalist or they're learning from the socialist they're learning from all of the greatest people as artists have always done to advance new ideas and new ideals new ideologies and they're bringing people along as one community or maybe, you know, a, you know, several communities, but they're acting as a community to help each other. So, I mean, that would be ideal for me personally. That's mm. what I, I imagine. They're certainly not like keeping secrets mm. and like stubbornly refusing to uh, move forward or move anywhere. Um, they're thinking and experimenting and sharing, I guess. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Jeremy. Oh, thank you. It was like a lot of fun. And thanks to everyone out there who listened to this series of We Make Media. Come back for the next series of eight episodes when I'll be talking with media makers, technologists, and educators about new literacies. Until then, stay creative and do be artists. <laughs>